Martin Luther's sermons. Holy Christmas Day, first sermon. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The account of Christ's birth at Bethlehem. 1. This is the narrative for the festival marking the birth of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, about which we want to preach. It is a good arrangement in the church year to commemorate the story in this way, especially since there is such power in it. It is the ground on which our Christian faith rests. This history is something our young folks need to become acquainted with and the average person learn very well in order that they might know where to ground their Christian faith. Our Lord God's power and might sustain this text over against Satan's fury, so that under the terrible darkness of this world and the popedom, our young people and the people in general may know the meaning of Christ's birth, suffering, death, and resurrection. This gospel has two parts. The first has to do with the account itself and its meaning for today, that Jesus Christ was born at Bethlehem. The second part is the message of the angels telling of its fruit and power and how we are to profit from it. The narrative should be impressed upon the minds of the young people and people in general in order that they may know the very article they confess in the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. The meaning especially needs to be studiously pointed out beside the history so that we relish its true goodness. As St. Luke tells the story, he points out precisely at what time, what year, what place, and the manner of Christ's birth. It was at Bethlehem in Judea, at the time when the Roman Empire was at its zenith under its most notable Caesar, and when the first general census was taken. The decree was given by Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled and taxed, in obedience to this degree, decree, Joseph and Mary went to be enrolled, and for this reason they journeyed from Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. The time for Mary's delivery came, and she gave birth to her son, the Savior of the world, in a strange land and place, away from home. And because the town was so crowded, there was not even room in the inn. This is the account briefly told. From it one may see and learn that the Lord, immediately with his birth into the world, distinguished sharply between his kingdom and the world's, as regards the world, it is as though he is not cognizant of it and its jurisdiction, and contrawise the world's acknowledgment of him is virtually nil, both as to his person and his kingdom. Yet Christ does not strip Caesar Augustus of his power and rule. 
he lets him issue the decree for the worldwide taxation, and what is more, lets him tax the parents, Joseph and Mary, too. Caesar rules things in his kingdom with absolute authority, basing his decisions on the canons of sound reason and wisdom, strict law and order. All this Christ allows to take place, except only that he wants his kingdom to be distinguished from Caesar's. For that reason, he conducts himself as though Caesar's realm and the world's did not concern him. And in turn, the world and Caesar act as though this king and his kingdom were of no account to them. Christ indeed was born in Bethlehem, the very town in the land of his fathers, from which Micah the prophet foretold that the Messiah should come. But thou, Bethlehem Epaphrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee he shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Micah 5, 2. Yet he is a stranger in his fatherland. Another, namely, Caesar Augustus, is supreme king and ruler. For Christ there is barely room in a stall and manger. He is born in a strange locality, where he has no home, in cold winter and at night, in a place and at a time when he is totally forsaken by everyone and without the usual necessities for such a mo moment. Miserable were the circumstances, with a world more hostile and loveless toward this king than to lions and bears. It does not so much as open a little room for him or give him a warm place, but shunts him off to the barn with the cattle. There, in great lowliness, this noble son and great king was born, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. These are signs and testimonies enough to show that the world cares not a hoot about him, but disdains him. By the same token, though, the configuration of things connected with his birth, this king demonstrates that he does not stand in awe of the world, but would begin a new way and kingdom, even though he choose meanwhile to be in the world. To distinguish well between these two kingdoms is a great art, which very few people rightly master. What usually happens is that the rulers of this world want to rule over the church, and contrawise the spiritual leaders want to take over the town hall. Under the papacy, it was considered to be good government when the two were mixed together. The fact was that it was very bad. As long as the bishops were still pious, the distinction was respected. They served the church and honored Caesar's rule. But the successors mixed the two realms, grabbed the sword, and became worldly lords. The present state of affairs is that the squires and nobles want to govern consciences and give orders in the church. Similarly, when the spiritual lords now assert themselves, they take the sword from the secular lords, as happened under the papacy. At all events, Christ was born at Bethlehem of a natural mother, in a manger and diapers, in a world where Caesar Augustus ruled, the governed, ruled and governed, no less also in Bethlehem. Similarly, there is no Christian on earth who has no need for the world. Now then, Christ's and Caesar's realm are to be distinguished as follows. Christ's kingdom, briefly stated, is a spiritual realm, and yet exists the meanwhile in the kingdom of this world. Christ and Christians live in and use this world, as St. Paul teaches, 1 Timothy 6-7. Caesar's realm is a worldly kingdom which directs and sets things in order, governs with law, conducts war, rules with the sword, and so on. With such worldly things, Christ has nothing to do, but his kingdom and office have to do with saving souls from sin and death and a succor where the world cannot help. For this reason he conducts himself over and against this world as though he did not know it, and the world vice versa, 
deals with him as though it does not know him. Really, what should have been, what should have happened is that the citizens of Jerusalem ought to have crept out to Bethlehem on their knees and welcomed their king. Or at least the mayor of Bethlehem should have gone into the stable to offer him service and waited upon him. But no one came, neither from Jerusalem nor Bethlehem. None paid him heed. He is stuck away in a stable, and for his part does not present himself as a king or lord, but as a poor beggar who has come to the earth to declare that he is no worldly king, nor does he have a physical realm, but that his kingdom belongs in another world and life. Whoever would be a preacher or teacher, or simply just a Christian, must direct all that he does to the end, that it serve that life and recognize that the cause of finalis, that is, the end purpose of the spiritual realm and heavenly rule in which Christ is King and Lord, is how man ought to live in this world. People's lives in this world belong under the governance of Caesar, who has had authority to direct things, put evildoers to death, make marriage laws, regulate the rearing of children, build, plant, divide the land, and the like. Christ, on the other hand, has and gives everlasting peace, eternal life, and salvation. True it is that Christians live their lives here upon the earth, eat and drink in this world, just as Christ their King also ate and drank and shared in life here. But Christians do this as pilgrims and strangers, as guests in a lodging place, as Christ also did. In an inn the master of the house sees to it that there is food, drink, bread, meat, wine, beer. The guest is not in charge of that. He does not instruct the landlord how to run the house. He does not tell the manager how to go about buying foodstuffs. Rather, he asks the innkeeper whether there is bread and meat for him that he might eat, since he is weary from travel. So also Christ has not come to the earth in order to seize power from Caesar Augustus and teach him how to rule, but he uses the worldly realm and the manger until he has fulfilled the mission for which he has been sent. This is what St. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as they ought to have none, be as though they have none, and that they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world not as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. In other words, in other words a Christian's end purpose is not his life on earth, to be merry, to marry and be given in marriage, eat, drink, be clothed, rejoice, buy and sell. Though like a guest for an hour or two, these things satisfy life's needs. But he pursues another goal, which endures once all this ceases. This distinction must be carefully noted. Finis politicae est pax mundi. Finis ecclesiae est pax aeterna. That is, the end purpose of the government is temporal peace, while the ultimate end of the church is not peace and comfort on earth, nice homes, wealth, power, and honor, but everlasting peace. Caesar does not care whether I die a blessed death and come to everlasting life, nor can he be of help against death, but must himself die just like me. Death comes to him as to the lowliest beggar. Caesar's jurisdiction pertains to the temporal, transitory life, but where this temporal life ceases, there the rule of the Christian church intervenes. Let this be the goal and purpose for which the Christian realm strives and aims to proclaim the treasure for troubled and anguished consciences which Christ has earned for and committed to his church, namely the forgiveness of sins and everlasting peace.
The Pope has dispatched this distinction and made a new worldly government out of Christ's kingdom with his decretals. Now Christ did not come in order to cancel out the old secular government, but to establish a new spiritual realm. He has not stripped secular government in any way, but given it its due. He uses this world, but he does not govern this world in a worldly manner like a secular king. He takes from the world a little bread, but does not instruct how bread should be produced, leaving that to Caesar. So much for the first part of the gospel. The second part of the gospel treats the angel's message, which is the chief part of the gospel, and clearly shows that Christ's kingdom is, much, is a much different realm than that of the world. For if our dear Lord Christ had wanted to be a worldly monarch, then the high priests of Jerusalem, Annas and Caiaphas, or the other prominent people of Bethlehem would have come and celebrated his birth by preaching and singing glory to God in the highest. But now it is the heavenly spirits, the holy angels of God, the princes who belong to that kingdom who come. These heavenly princes do not turn their eyes upon the world, but upon the, this king born in the stable and laid in a manger. Thereby they indicate that this kind of kingdom this king possesses is one over which neither Caesar Augustus nor Herod could rule, but only God himself could be king and lord, in which only angels and sanctified people are. Accordingly, the account of the Lord Christ's birth is opened up straightway and brought into the light with the angels coming. Christ's kingdom is set apart and distinguished from worldly government. The indication is that it is a heavenly eternal realm, even though it is, its rule is begun here on earth. When you therefore ask what sort of king Christ is, the answer here is that he is heaven's and the angel's king. And yet the king of heaven lies here in the manger without jurisdiction over the manger, but as a guest on the earth, having another, a higher realm to govern of which the angels preach, as we will hear. Also it is made plain who those are who belong to this king's realm, namely those with troubled hearts and broken spirits. Those who strive after worldly rule, power, and eminence do not belong to this kingdom. True it is that a Christian may and could be a worldly ruler, governing over land and people, but he does so in obedience to God and out of a Christian love, ruling in line with his calling and in service to the world, considering himself to be a servant in the house and a guest in the end as David, already a king, said, Psalm 39:12, I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner, as my fathers were. Those, however, who seek after the, and contend for worldly power and lordship do not belong in the king's realm. Here belong the poor, needful people, for whom Christ came to earth. For that reason, his kingdom is to be perceived as a kingdom for the terrified, sorrowful, wretched people. The purpose for which the angels come in their dazzling and glorious brilliance to the great fright of the shepherd is to declare the truth that such wretched, sorrowful people who do not seek after great wealth, power, and eminence are the only ones who come into this king's realm. They do indeed live in this world's realm, exercise its powers, and rule when it is their lot, just as their king, Christ, uses swaddling cloths, milk, and the crib. But they do not contend for or seek after it, but keep their eyes on the eternal realm in which there is everlasting peace and eternal life. This is what the text signifies when it says that the shepherds were sore afraid, for the angels appeared to them in shining brilliance and light, lighting up the darkness of the night as though heaven were on fire, and for the shepherds it seemed as though it was nothing other than lightning. 
In this way it was demonstrated that this king was born for those who live in fear and trembling, and that they alone belong in his kingdom. They were the ones to whom it should be preached as the angels announced to the terrified shepherds, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. What is this joy? Listen to what the angel says. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. That signified that this joy would be proclaimed to all people, but only those would be receptive whose consciences were stricken and hearts troubled. These are the ones that belong to me and to my message, and to whom I proclaim something good. Is not this a wonder, that this joy would be dearest to those in whom the conscience was most disquieted? There, where fear and terror reigned, this glorious, precious, sweet joy was to come. There, where the human heart could grasp and receive it only with difficulty. The shepherds were witnesses to this brilliant light which overpowered the world's darkness, and yet they were terrified by it and feared greatly. Ought one be, really be terrified by joy and be fearful before such beautiful light? Indeed, as the text says, the shepherds were frightened by the dazzling light of the Lord that shone around them, and that is the way it must be, and no other way. Note this well, however, and never lose hold of it. The angel said that Christ, born at Bethlehem, is not a terror-filled cause for sorrow, but great comforting joy for which a terrified heart wishes and yearns. The world rejoices when things are good, and it has money and possessions, power and glory. But a troubled, sorrowful heart craves nothing more than peace and comfort, to know that he has a gracious God. And this joy, whereby the sorrowful heart has rest and peace, is so great that all the world's joy reeks in comparison. For that reason, poor consciences need to be preached to, as the angel here preaches, Hear me, one and all, who are miserable and sorrowful in heart, I bring you a joyful tiding. You must not imagine that Christ is angry with you, for he did not come to earth and become man for that reason that he might shove you into hell, much less was he crucified and died for that purpose. Instead, he came that you might have great joy in him. In short, there are no sour grapes with him. That is the right explanation and understanding. If you wish to define Christ correctly and portray him truly, who and what he is, then note carefully how the angel distinguishes and portrays him, namely, that he is and is called great joy. I personally learned this the hard way under the papacy, for no one ever taught me anything else than that Christ was a stern judge who would pass judgment on me according to my deserts and works. I was used to thinking at all times, therefore, how I might produce good works and that I might reconcile Christ my judge. In no way could this be termed great joy, and unto you is born this day a Savior, but rather the preaching of hellfire. What was missing for me was that I could not name Christ rightly with the name the angel gave, Great Joy, as he most surely also is. Great, sweet, precious joy. This sermon, as stated, pertains only to the poor, terrified consciences. They are the ones who should learn this definition and picture Christ as nothing other than joy personified. It is in the, the nature of things that those who are, are ready to grant that Christ is sheer joy allow it to become nothing but terror for themselves. And on the other hand, those for whom this definition is not intended turn it for themselves towards fleshly security. 
Those to whom it does not pertain learn it quickly, while those who ought to take hold of it have difficulty. But they ought nonetheless grasp it, since it applies to them alone. Therefore all who gladly believe in their hearts that Christ is nothing other than pure joy, these have learned well. When these folks come and hear that the first world was destroyed by the flood, that Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped off the map by fire and brimstone, and similar terrible visitations like these of God's wrath and judgment, they immediately respond, Be that as it may, I perceive who Christ is, and I believe that he is rightly named Great Joy. The devil, however, does not readily let us have this belief, but always wants good works added in, and highlights for poor troubled consciences the most terrifying stories and, explain, and examples of God's wrath and judgments, tormenting and torturing them in order to melt them down with terrors. For that reason a person must learn to keep Christ and all other works carefully separate, no longer dwelling on them fearfully and with terrors of conscience, nor plaguing and torturing oneself with thoughts of God's wrath and fearful judgments upon the ungodly. He must instead affirm, I know for a fact that God destroyed the world with a flood, reduced Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes with fire and brimstone, cut down the Assyrian king with his army before Jerusalem in one night. But all of this I enjoined upon the ungodly world, the papists, Turks, counterfeit Christians, and stiff-necked sinners. For myself, however, there's something else. I am fearful and anxious. And for that reason I must remember that Christ is known by no other name than the one the angel gives, namely, Great Joy. Here I see another picture before me, that a virgin sits in a darkened stable in Bethlehem with a dear gracious child in her lap, whose name is Great Joy. This is what the angel would want us to learn through the sermon, so that all sorrowful hearts and anxious consciences might recognize and grasp Christ according to his true, true picture. Where Christ puts on a sour face, there he drowns the world with a flood and cuts down kings and tyrants. But here he has no sour face, but friendly and loving and is called great joy. For who is good? For all troubled hearts. This, then, is a golden text which we ought to learn well, so that we might know how to comfort ourselves in time of sorrow and trial. How is this great joy portrayed? The angel shows that he is this as he announces further, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The words, Christ the Lord, sound terrifying to us. In the Pope's theology and our own weak nature, it makes us think of the hangman with his gallows, rope, and sword. But it is actually a comforting word, especially because with it stands Savior, that is a helper who brings bliss and salvation. Whoever has no fear and cross does not need this Savior, but those poor sinners who are in fear and angst are in need of him, for none can help them except this Savior, Christ the Lord, born this day in Bethlehem. Therefore we should take the angel at his word and not make a liar out of him. He gives Christ his right name, the one that alone fits. He is and is called the only Savior. For on the last day when he will come to judge the living and the dead, he comes first of all as true helper, directing us toward genuine help, rescuing us from devil, death, pope, wicked evildoers, and from the wicked world. 
If he were not to come on the last day, he would not be a rightful Savior. But he will come on that day in order to show himself a Savior indeed, not in order to judge those who rejoice in him, but so that he might judge and punish Pope, Cardinals, Bishops, and the ungodly world, all of whom blasphemed and persecuted him. He will come in order to settle accounts with those who tore up their inheritance, that is, first of all, the devil, and then the tyrants and wicked of this world who plague mankind, peasants, burglars, nobility alike. Accordingly, wherever Christ is, in the manger or at God's right hand, whether called Lord or Judge, as we confess in faith concerning him, he is at all times our Savior. Everything that he has done and will yet do has this significance and this purpose, that we might be saved. God grant us his grace, that we may receive and ever hold fast to these things. Amen. The conclusion of Luther's sermon on Christmas Day. <laughs>